Um, I always felt that we can, you know, we can be what we want to be as long as we kind of put our minds down to it. And there's a lot of flack going on. There's a lot of uh, noise. Uh, but if you just kind of get on with it and, and, and a little bit of a step, you know, every day, you kind of get to a point where I think you have uh, confidence and capability to kind of make a change. So, Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of What I Wish I Knew show with Mike Irwin and myself. This week's show, I'm delighted to welcome John Creedon. Um, he's a gentleman I met last year, and I had the fortitude and the understanding of the sort of experiences that he'd had throughout his career and felt he was an immensely interesting person to, to bring on this show. Um, the show would actually last about four days to go through every bit of experience and skill that he's learned. Um, but we've got about 40 minutes here, and I, I'm delighted to welcome you, John. Um, and in essence, John, uh, background, he's from Limerick. Uh, he studied at university in electrical and uh, um, electronic engineering. And then he thrust himself into the world of the unknown with Goldman Sachs. And he's one of these people that's just a doer. So people talk about around the world working for businesses. With Goldman Sachs, he went around the world. He lived in Tokyo. He lived in, in the US. So he actually delivered on these. And with a background alongside that of um, in the early years, something which we all now dream about and is growing, he became a vegetarian. So this is over 21 years ago, he became a vegetarian. Um, he believed in sustainability before it was even a buzzword. And what's interesting about John's experience is he's kind of moved a little bit of a circle here from the learnings from the big teams working with Goldman Sachs and big businesses and helping support them in their financial uh, functions. So now living, I guess, the dream of driving businesses with, with sustainability. And he's now got a, a company that he's a CEO and co-founder called the Planet Arborist, which we'll ask a little bit about later in the, in the show. He's, uh, he's got a family of two uh, daughters, um, and he's happily married back here in the UK right now. And um, some other interests which may come out, but I'd just like to share them with you. He's a doer, as I said. So he makes vegan cheese. He actually makes beer. So these are things, I, I don't know where he gets his time to do these, but these are things he just do in, in what he calls his spare time. So John, with that long introduction, uh, welcome, welcome to the show. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Thank you, Mike, for having me today. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Uh, thanks for the introduction. It's, uh, it's quite interesting to hear you say it uh, and, and out of my head and, and in the, on the airwaves, so to speak. Good. So, John, uh, you know, massive AIA career and experience, but I'd love to start kind of early up um, and wind back to leaving university and how you kind of enabled and moved on and upwards with a, you know, a big company that everybody will recognize on this show, a, a Goldman Sachs. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was an interesting journey. I think um, the original opportunity was to go to Japan with a Japanese company. So Japanese company actually came to our university and, and recruited uh, about six people in total from uh, about three or four different universities in Ireland. But I actually went off to work for Fujitsu uh, as a computer engineer uh, in Tokyo. And, uh, you know, why, why did I do that? Well, I always wanted to travel. So when I was kind of 15, 16, I started to look at, you know, what I live in Australia, New Zealand, you know, it was always about kind of working and living and experiencing, you know, different culture. 
but the opportunity came up actually in my third year to learn Japanese as, a, as an elective subject. So, you know, being an engineer, we had lots of, you know, geeky types of subjects. Uh, we were forced to do things like communications and uh, other, other kind of humanities type topics. I particularly enjoyed um, economic history. And, uh, and then I had an opportunity to do, uh, you know, Japanese as an elective. And I said, hey, you know, maybe I'll go to Japan. And uh, as it turned out, myself, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, ended up going to Japan to work for a different Japanese company. So that kind of gave us kind of a foothold, I suppose, uh, into Japan. And, you know, what people said to us, I can remember the um, Irish Development Authority organization, it's a government organization in Ireland, they gave us a little bit of a, uh, you know, a culture, uh, some culture lessons before we left. We went on a kind of a week course or so. But you know, I remember one person saying at one point, you know, you're going to Japan, I can assure you that most of you will be millionaires by the, by the time you reach 30 or 40 or something like that. Now, I don't claim to be that rich, uh, but I felt, oh boy, this guy is saying something and I'm just jumping into the unknown here, going to work as a, as a lowly salary man in a Japanese company, um, as, they, as the, the Japanese love to describe it. And uh, yeah, but I didn't know, I said, hey, Give it a go you don't know where it's going to go um but i signed up for in my head for a two-year plan which was kind of understood uh, and then once i got to tokyo it was it was fantastic it was it was just bizarre in many ways uh, but it was normal in other ways as well you know it's people they drive on the left the same as in the uk and, and in ireland so there were lots of things that were very similar um that that made it uh, a very interesting experience and i guess uh, launching into the unknown with a few that, hey, you're young and you want to travel, you want to learn, and you're already equipped somewhat with the, you know, with the language meant that uh, we were able to sit, settle in, you know, pretty quickly. And uh, I can remember, uh, I suppose, within the context of the Japanese culture and the Japanese, um, uh, specifically the company culture, feeling after about a year that, you know, this isn't for me in that um, very hierarchical structure. Um, you really have to put in your time to get promoted. And um, it wasn't really open to, let's say, any kind of an entrepreneurism. Um, and I felt I needed to, I needed to spread my wings. And that's when I started to look around, probably about a year in. And um, I was kind of told, pretty bluntly, you don't have enough experience. So I went back and I put my head down and I figured out, well, what do we need to get experience in? What do we need to do uh, to be up for, you know, a candidate for for a job? And at the time, luckily, it was the I kind of call it the wild east in terms of the financial services uh, and the banking services in, in, in Tokyo at the time. Um, a lot of the US and European investment banks were moving into, uh, into Tokyo and into the Asia Pacific region, uh, region. And I was a computer engineer with a knowledge of distributed systems networking. That was my skill. I'd worked on that in Fujitsu. And I knew that was in demand in terms of what financial uh, the financial system would need to, to expand. Um, and I put myself up for it and um, yeah, uh, that's how we ended up in, in Goldman Sachs, you know, two years into Japan, I transferred or started, you know, within Goldman and then, you know, in many ways, professionally, uh, you know, my eyes were opened. It was, it was a fertile ground. You, whatever you wanted to do, as long as it made sense and you got consensus with the organization, you could go and do it. So I was basically doing anything I wanted uh, to help progress, you know, what we needed to do as a technology organization to support the expanding trading business in Asia, which was fantastic. So John, just just um, a step back though. You you talked about you went to Japan. You know you and 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 you met your partner. How did that you know how did that come about in terms of your desire? Was it was it something on a plate through Fujitsu or was it because of the the interest in the language? What 
what made you jump? Well, I think it was it was it was both. It all kind of rolled together quite nicely because I started taking Japanese in college before I considered going to Japan. Um, I knew as a graduate in 1990 that um, you know there were opportunities in 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 Ireland to certainly uh, work within the as a computer engineer, etc. But I felt I wanted more than that. I wanted to kind of see the world. I kind of grew up in, in Ireland at a time of tremendous kind of economic and social change. And I think I felt in my head, I was kind of way ahead in terms of what I wanted to do in terms of what possibly was there at the time. And um, I felt I just needed to go. I needed to spread my wings and, and I needed to travel. So I, and I didn't want, you know, I wasn't one of these people who wanted to go backpacking around the world. I mean, I'd love to be able to do that at some point. I still haven't. Uh, but what I love to do is to actually go and just kind of, you know, experience working in a culture, working with people, getting to know friends. If I'm going to a, a random city where I don't know anybody, it's not anyway as enjoyable as going to visit somebody who actually lives in that city, even if it's an hour outside the city, you know? So I, I think that I always had an interest in kind of culture and people and, and, and traveling from that uh, you know, perspective. Um, it, we were fortunate that they had just set up a Japanese language um, department in our, in our university. So, you know, I went there and it was a, I still remember uh, the, the teacher, he was uh, doing a PhD in the Irish language, Japanese uh, man doing a PhD in the Irish language. And that, that was his job. And he set up a, a Japanese department to kind of educate the other way. So, you know, again, you can imagine the structure of a language being very different, the writing system being very different. It was like, a, it was totally, you were totally disoriented. Um, but it meant that we had the, you know, had the basis to, to learn and, and to, land on the ground. And the great thing about Tokyo at the time was once you got there and you were able to kind of make your way around and talk some kind of pitch in Japanese, you're already way more fluent than the person who's gonna arrive the next week or two weeks later or a month later. And, uh, and certainly more fluent than any um, expat, you know? So I, th I think the other key difference for me was I wasn't kind of joining a company being sent to Japan. I went to Japan to work directly as a local employee for a Japanese company which meant that um, we were working and um, talking and communicating in Japanese. Uh, so I was doing my status reporting on my computer software projects in Japanese every week. I mean, that was hell. Uh, and the worst thing was reporting that status, having a meeting about it, and then have people try to help you and saying, well, you know, <laughs> Japanese is okay, but I'm not sure it's down to this you know, particular level. Um, but yeah, so, so I, I think those things kind of came together quite um, nicely yeah. in terms of an, an interest, you know, you know, I guess you, you kind of look at what's out there and you find the opportunities that are kind of interesting and you kind of tie them together into something that uh, might make sense. And as I always say, just have a go, see, see how it works. So on that, in that note, John, then if you think about that transition from, you know, your own culture into, you know, into Japan and, and you're, as, as you stated, your experience is markedly different because you were not an expat. Mm -hmm. You were going to Japan for a job that, you know, was, was there. So, can you think about in terms of what I wish I knew in that sense of people that are considering a leap like that into a different culture, into, you know, working in a different environment. As you look back on that time, what did you wish you knew up front? It sounds like you had the right kind of mentality for it, but is there anything that sort of surprised you? Like, oh, I wish I had done this or known that in advance. Yeah, well, I think you can probably, I can probably say that every day of my life as I, as I look around, you know, new stuff that I don't know and I wish I knew. Uh, but, you know, you know, specifically there, I guess what I didn't appreciate was the, um, so much the value of, you know, of, of the language uh, in terms of going into, you know, a country and, and really kind of perfecting that to a level where you could really be very, very effective. So, you know, 
I suppose in my mind, I made a transition into Goldman Sachs at the time, which was in Japan, it was in Tokyo, but it was mostly English speaking at that stage. And the only Japanese I already spoke was with some Japanese colleagues or, you know, I did have some external relationships for it, which were, you know, it, you know, in Japanese. So um, I, I think that um, if you're going to take a, a leap like that, I think it's great to have the mentality and, and, and the mentality and being prepared to kind of get up and go. But I think the kind of training aspect or the, the preparing uh, a little bit more, I think probably would have meant that I could have got a little bit more out of the Japanese experience. Now, would that have made a difference in the long run? You know, probably not. Um, but I think it would have meant that I could have had a you know, more productive time, I think, while I was in Tokyo and I might have stayed longer. Now, at the end of the day, I did stay five years. And, um, you know, that was, that was three years longer than my master plan to go out for two. Uh, but that's where I felt, um, you know, it, it kind of makes sense to renew a two-year plan, even if it's only a one-year plan at some point. Uh, and, and that's good. Yeah. So, so you know, for, from my perspective, I kind of look back and um, there's nothing I particularly regret. Um, a little bit more preparation would be good. But um, if it was, if I was learned, if I was left absolutely to my own devices, I would have done much worse. So, so I guess I was fortunate to kind of get the benefit of the Japanese company coming, recruiting, supporting Japanese language learning to a higher level, and then really investing in us. We were the kind of international crew helping to kind of internationalize the, you know, Japanese environment. And, you know, I think we probably could have given a little bit more back if I had been, uh, you know, more fluent, let's say, you know, in Japanese. By the time I left, I wasn't too bad, but I certainly didn't get to the stage where my wife got to where she was doing business presentations to Japanese, you know, uh, business personnel at, at trade seminars and everything else. And that was, I think, a kind of a culturally, uh, you know, deeper, um, deeper experience. And I think that from my perspective as well, you know, I did turn vegetarian in Japan, but did I really exploit all of the wonderful umami tastes of, of the Orient? No. Uh, possibly because I wasn't, you know, educated enough or I didn't, you know, hadn't kind of prepared culturally for that aspect. And and now I'm finding out things about Japan that, you know, can't wait to get back, so to speak, in terms of going on a different journey, you know, culturally. I, I suppose, you know, the other thing that um, uh, would have helped um, in terms of language learning was to uh, use that language to be more effective, especially in terms of communicating with internal Japanese clients and, you know, external external vendors, you know, so to speak, I probably could have gotten better discounts from vendors if my Japanese language was, was better, you know. Um, but having said that, I, I think that I had probably invested enough um, in the Japanese language itself that I was able to probably connect and communicate with members of staff, members of the, let's say, the technology organization and the client organization, uh, you know, much more easily. So um, I suppose my, my philosophy is if you're in somebody else's country, do your best to uh, understand their language you know obviously no, nobody's going to learn a language overnight but um they're, they're the basics that you can learn in terms of please thank you and, and and whatever um you know i was significantly above that i think in terms of my uh capability in japan but i do think that um to the original point if you're going to go somewhere it's good to have the right attitude but um you know if you're if you're better armed i think you'll you'll be more effective and there's some things you just don't know when you're young in terms of these things will actually make a difference especially if you're, you know, if you're a humanities student and your, your thing is languages, yeah, sure, it's going to be fine. But if you're an engineering student, you know, there are certain skills that you don't necessarily have a clue that you need. Um, but, you know, taking advice from people who might have gone down the path before you, those, those kind of things can really make a difference. And it, it's a worthwhile investment of time. And I think that overall, you become a more effective person because you're not just the engineer, the software person doing X, Y, and Z 
but you have the ability to, you know, to work within a business, to bring people along, whether it's your team or your clients, and life just becomes a lot more uh, easy and, and more effective. John, you, you, you mentioned earlier that you turned to uh, a vegetarian diet. How, you know, again, right now, this is not just massively on trend, as you know, it's massively growing, but how, how challenging was that for you? And, and what benefits did you reap even, even then? Well, just from the perspective of making the decision, the challenge was, well, it was no challenge. It was an overnight decision um, because it was probably something that I had been thinking about and just hadn't done anything about. Maybe I was mentally lazy about it to a great extent or just too busy uh, being a student and then, you know, in my early career that, uh, you know, we, I basically decided, okay, I'm not going to eat meat anymore. And um, it was overnight. It was fantastic. It was just like, hey, life is good. I can eat whatever I want as long as it's vegetarian. Uh, you know, my mom used to call me a fussy eater growing up. <laughs> and it was because I never ate any meat. You know, I was just like, the meat wasn't the main thing for me on the plate. I didn't like the taste. I didn't like the texture. I didn't like the concept. I, I, I liked nothing about it. Um, so, you know, to kind of make that decision was easy. I never kind of was into seafood in Japan. It's obviously a big, uh, you know, seafood location. And even if you're not eating seafood, it tends to taste the seafood. Um, because if they, you know, <laughs> Japanese have a great kind of cuisine culture coming out of the sea, but they, they kind of feed everybody on it, including the, all the animals. So, um, you know, from a taste perspective, it just didn't work for me. So I think mentally making the decision was, was pretty straightforward. Um, practically speaking, um, from a kind of a cooking and eating out perspective, you know, you just learn to find your restaurant that has the dish that will, that will work for you. And again, because I had Japanese, I was able to go into restaurants and, and kind of negotiate that with them and say, hey, you know, is there meat in this? Is there not meat in that? And you could do it all in Japanese. And even though Japanese culture tells, it tends to be quite strict, you know, if you're engaging with them, at least they'll give you information and tell you, you'll find out what's there because it's not, you know, handily labeled, et cetera. So I think the move uh, from a practical perspective uh, was fine. Um, if, I was, if, I, if I was kind of very interested in a wide range of cuisine, I think it would probably would have been more difficult. But in Japan, it was good. It was fine. There was, there was plenty of international cuisine to choose from. So there are certain cuisines that work better than others in terms of vegetarianism and, and veganism, um, Italian, uh, Indian in particular, Thai food, you know, all of our, our very great um, uh, vegan vegetarian options because they're just rich in overall plant, you know, spice taste. So I had all those options in Tokyo and that was relatively, you know, straightforward to do. Um, you know, from a work perspective, then going out with people at work, I mean, it was like a switch that I made that was that was me. And um, there's no question that somebody was going to tempt me into having meat or I wasn't going to go out and eat meat because my boss was eating meat or my boss's boss was like, no, this is like a core issue. And, uh, not, you know, it wasn't handled in any kind of um, contrarian fashion. It was just like, it just does not compute. It's not going to happen. Um, I don't eat meat. So <laughs> I've been out many times in Japanese restaurants where I've had just beer and rice, but that's okay with me because it's yeah. my position. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to make a fuss about it. Fantastic. And then John, you, you kind of had, you talk about the main part of your career at Goldman Sachs and you've had some really big sort of chunky blocks of um, um, increments in terms of your roles and responsibilities. Tell Tell me about the early piece, you know, from joining and then becoming the vice president. What, you know, what did, what did you bring that was different? What, what's the kind of learning that we can take from that? Um, <clears throat> I think I kind of, well, for one thing, I think I probably brought my, well, let's say 90% of my whole self to work because I was reasonably, you know, comfortable 
uh, and how I thought about myself. Of course, we all are. We're not all born, you know, self-confident. So there was lots of lots that I think I needed to kind of learn and do. And I think my my view on it was okay. Well, you know, I'm, I've now joined a company where um, it's pretty consensus driven. So you can have a conversation about things. And I was fortunate, I think, to work always with very good managers and and, and largely very you know very good teams. Um, and I think what I did for myself was, you know, start to look around for role models within the organization to say, okay, well, I, I know what I know, but I really know nothing because I'm only here a day or two. Um, who do I who do I want to be? Who's doing a job that I can see that I can observe that uh, I can see myself doing, and I can see myself kind of motivated by? So um, yeah, that's what I did. I, I did that, and I uh, I just got on with stuff. You know, in, in my own mind, I created a kind of a you know again back to the two year plan. Okay, you know, I, I want to kind of make a path towards you know uh, becoming this type of uh, or playing this type you know type of role. How do I get there? And I think that was very instructive for me because it kind of taught me, I suppose, what I needed to do, how I needed to act, you know, uh, with respect to teams, with respect to clients, et cetera. And uh, it also showed me opportunity in terms of, well, how did that person get there? Where did they come from? Where did they go to or, you know, over the course of that kind of year or two? And I think that kind of helped me kind of, you know, see a path through to, okay, uh, I came in as an engineer. I've kind of lots, lots of maths and engineering and physics and software. Uh, but now I'm in a financial organization where I know very little about finance. Um, so it kind of gave me the, I suppose, the, the impetus to learn the finance, uh, you know, which I did because I didn't feel I could be effective as a person or as a, let's say, an employee um, working in, in, in an area where I didn't really know, well, why are we here? What's the business? Um, so I suppose I defined for myself a role which was 50% engineer, software engineer, 50% finance. And I thought that combination, you know, you know, worked very well for me. And, um, you know, as I brought people in, let's say, recruited new teams, you know, that's the kind of philosophy I would share with people. And I think Goldman were pretty good at that, actually bringing in people from lots of different backgrounds who were smart and intelligent and um, wanted to get on with things. Um, our consensus based. Um, I remember I did, I, my, my daughter still doesn't believe me, I did nine interviews to get into Goldman Sachs. Like I met everybody but the janitor. Uh, you know, uh, when I joined Goldman and it was kind of stressful, uh, but, you know, they kind of said, well, you're going to meet lots of people because, you know, you, you need to like us too. Mm. You know, we, we want lots of people to kind of like you and get on with you, but you, you need to understand what you're kind of getting into. And uh, I think the night before I got the job offer, after the job offer, I can't remember, I watched Wall Street, you know, with Michael Douglas. And I was kind of thinking, <laughs> what the hell am I doing to myself? I'm going from a Japanese software engineer environment into, into, into Wall Street. And uh, that was a little scary until I got in the door. And, you know, within a few hours, as I said, I was extremely comfortable. People were great. The opportunities were, were rich. And, um, you know, it, it, was, it was just, you know, that type of, of, of environment. So, yeah, that's, that's what I took for it, basically, in terms yeah. of... The lesson I suppose I had to grow. And on that, you know, the other thing that's pretty interesting, John, is you come across as someone who's very self-aware and very reflective. And I, I kind of feel like if you were to equip young people with those two things, that they that they're thoughtful in that way and they look at, you know, they can make conscious choices in their lives, their careers, those qualities alone, you know, would serve you well. And I think as hearing you describe you know, your transition from Fujitsu to, you know, to Goldman and then how you looked at looking for mentors and that kind of thing. I mean, that sounds like, you know, one of the things, one of the qualities you had from a very young age was that kind of 
decisiveness of looking at creating your, as you describe them to your plans and making those conscious choices. Yeah, I think one thing, <clears throat> one thing I didn't really know about myself, but I, I found out um, later in life, just through <laughs> evidence, I suppose, is that I'm highly result orientated. So, um, you know, growing up as a kid, I was never the sporty one. Uh, my brother got all the sports genes and uh, I really didn't like sports. You know, what was the point? I mean, I could run around and field, score a goal, win a prize. Okay, so what? What do we do then? You know, so it, was, it didn't kind of work for me. I was kind of into music and I was into, you know, other things. Um, but then, you know, when I started my, my job, um, I could see that if I could see ahead, like that two years, if I could see what I was shooting for, I could, I could get there. And I probably didn't really realize this until I started cycling up very high mountains. And, um, you know, thinking that, okay, well, the worst thing you can do or feel is to try and cycle up a very high mountain, especially if you're not fit. And, um, you know, so you got you to gotta start somewhere. And I kind of took, took automatically the same attitude to say, well, I've got to get up that mountain, but I'm not going to get all, up all of the mountain on the first ride. So let's just start riding, you know, uh, lots of tall mountains and, and, and building some fitness. And, um, and then I as I started to kind of go for the higher peaks, you know, it was kind of looking and thinking about, well, I just need to make it around the next corner. That's all. It's all in your head. It's all, it's, it's all kind of mental. If you can make it to the next corner, that's what matters. It doesn't matter if there's 28 bends to come and another thousand meters of climbing, it just matters that you get to the next corner. So I kind of adopted, I suppose, automatically that kind of um, philosophy, I suppose, uh, in terms of, you know, just the physical exercise and something that I wasn't terribly sporty at, but that's where I found that cycling either in a group or by myself really worked because I was competing in, in many ways against myself because I, I don't really naturally compete with others. We all compete with others in, in, in a way, but I always kind of look for, well, how can we kind of get the best of everybody and progress? Because I never think, I'm, I'm certainly never the smartest guy in the room. Um, I certainly have something to contribute, but I have a huge amount to, you know, to learn. So, um, you know, whether you're cycling up a mountain or you're progressing on your career, there's got to be somebody that you can help out that's probably uh, more physically fit, you know, or smarter than you, that uh, you can help. And, you know, as we say, sometimes the person that passes you out career-wise and gets to the top, well, you know, you better be nice to them on the way up. You know? <laughs> there's some altruism, self-enlightened altruism that, you know, there as well. So, I think that that is something that I probably realized later that ah, I probably had been doing that just in my career and, and how I thought about my own development early in life. And that's, um, you know, it works for me. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody, but I think this whole self-awareness thing is, is very important because I think people can get, go down the route of, of, of looking at role models or trying to get mentors and they're kind of looking for a prepackaged solution to say, oh, you do this, you're gonna play a mentor in this kind of role this is why I want to be, but I want to be there tomorrow. And you're saying, well, you're not going to get there tomorrow. Um, it might not be the right fit. And, you know, some people know, have a very fixed idea about what they want to be. So, some, some kids are born and they want to be a medical doctor. Some others want to be accountants. You know, I was never like that. I was always kind of like, okay, I kind of fell into computer engineering, software engineering. I could do it. Was, was I really excited about it? Yeah, not really. It was good. It was good. I could do it. I was, I was fine with it. When I got into finance, I said, okay, finance is really interesting. Wow, this is, this is pretty complicated. I, maybe I should have taken some more accounting and finance modules when I was in university or, or secondary <laughs> school. But, you know, that idea of constant learning, I think, was, yeah. was kind of a big motivation. And I think you kind of have to have that. You have to want to learn. You have to understand that you're on a long kind of journey. There's going to be many twists and turns and then, and then figure out, well, what do you do with that? That's, that's a great perspective. And, that, and that's something that you can kind of codify. 
right? Yeah. So if you get the right mentor who's able to help you in that way, then then you're you're kind of a long way down the road of 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 your your own kind of self and professional development. One thing, John, uh, that comes up, and we talked about before, and I'm getting a sense of it now in terms of your experience. You're a, you talk about working smartly, and and you're a smart guy. Share with us a bit about the learning about the, this leadership approach, and and how you you kind of develop teams around you that enabled you as a leader. Mm. Well, I think that a key part of that was the kind of international global experience I had because I think, you know, uh, I certainly wasn't a born, I certainly, I certainly wouldn't consider myself a born leader, you know, um, and people who kind of get in and coach and want to lead and tell you what to do is like, I'm, I'm fairly naturally anti-authority. Um, I don't respect people who have authority and use it just because they have authority. I respect people who are in a position because they've earned it um, and they're smart and they're capable and, you know, they bring people along with them. So, I mean, that, that I was fortunate that, you know, by far most of my managers and, and leaders in, in Goldman were of that type. And that was, you know, that was, that was fantastic. But I think that um, everybody's kind of born a bit different. Some people are a bit more get, a, get up and go and want to lead. Others, you know, are reluctant leaders. Um, you know, everybody kind of finds their way and everybody can be a leader in some, you know, some shape or form. But I did feel that for me, um, the international experience dealing with different cultures. So, okay, we, we spoke a lot about Japan. Um, but then when I moved to London, all of a sudden I was in London and I was going through culture shock in London. And people say, well, why are you going through culture shock? You're, you're, you're Irish. And I said, I know, but I, I didn't grow up here and get educated here. I didn't live here. I spent <laughs> the last five years of my, you know, at a university in Tokyo, growing up in a very international environment where you had lots of Americans, lots of Japanese, lots of Swiss, lots of French, Germans, you know. And then you're in London and people kind of think like, okay, you come from... Ireland, so you should be fine. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not fine. Um, so I think that was a real eye opener in terms of, hang on, I gotta, I gotta figure out how these people tick. Um, and uh, that took a while. It took the best part of a year, I would say. Um, but then you, you kind of got used to it, and um, you know, then I got a bit kind of footloose, and I was ready to go to the U.S. and, and, and experience the same type of thing. And the interesting thing, I, I suppose, I found out about building that leadership was the Japanese thing was very in position, different culture, different language, international environment, but a good mix. And you came to London where it's all kind of basically through English. Um, and then I went to the US and it's in English again, mostly. But, you know, the, the culture change, uh, both from a social and from a, let's say, a co-worker per, uh, perspective moving to the US was, was hugely different to what it was in London. So you've gone from a situation in Tokyo where just with co-workers, you could go out every night. Um, that was just the environment. Japanese people are incredibly sociable. Their, their homes are very small. So they don't want to be there. They want to go out and, and eating out is, is, is relatively cheap. So it's, it's a great place to plug into a social network. You come to London and it's different. People are friendly, but they're more cliquish. You know, it's more kind of you're in the in-group or the out-group and you have to work your way into the in-group, right? And then you go to the US and then, and then it's kind of like a, a whole kind of different mixture. I think people are naturally more friendly and they're more direct and it's a bit more like a, an Irish culture. I think that, you know, you'll, people are friendly. They'll talk to you. They're very direct. Um, but then they'll only go out with you if, if you put the credit card behind the bar, you know, and I'm like, hang on a second, don't, aren't we friends here? No, <laughs> I'll go out with you. <laughs> I found just simple things like that were, you know, quite, quite different. And I think we got to a point, obviously you get to always get to a point with subgroups where you kind of go out for a couple of drinks, you go out for, for a meal anyway, but I think that was very different. And then New York being lots of different um, culture there as well. And because I was moving from, let's say, a kind of, um, 
an accounting type financial system or financial world into a, a risk, a market risk. It's much more quantitative. So now I meant from dealing with, you know, accountants in London, which were fantastic. And some of my deepest relations are still with those accountants today. Then I moved into risk uh, and risk was with, with lots of quantitative analysts, um, you know, very clever people, but not everybody had the strongest interpersonal skills. And, um, you know, I was moved over there to kind of, let's say, help fix a situation where technology needed to work with the quants and, and we all needed to kind of work with the people responsible for producing and reporting the numbers up to the firm-wide risk committee, you know, the risk committee of the firm. Um, you know, so just getting your head around that was, was, was um, hugely exhausting for me, hugely uncomfortable. Um, fantastic learning opportunity. Um, had to deal with weird and wonderful people, bullies. Um, but you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think it was, was it Nietzsche said that. Uh, you know, and I kind of I kind of lived through that. And um, and then we went through a downturn, right? The dot com um, bust happened, and then you're in a situation where oh my god, I have to I have to let people go, right? And these are all things that you don't want to do. Uh, and all of a sudden you have to do because you're in that you know, position and you have to make absolutely the best decision you can. So, and I think that uh, I suppose when you hire people, it's a great day. When you fire people, it's not a good day. Um, and, and I don't think, we, you know, we, we never fired people for, for cause, so to speak. It was always driven by the economic you know, situation, but that didn't make it, you know, didn't make it any easier. So I think that, um, to a certain extent, I'm a kinesthetic learner. I need to kind of, conceptually, I kind of know, you know, what the kind of challenge is. I have no clue what it really means until you kind of get into it. But then when you get into it um, and, and, and you've experienced it, uh, you never go back. You never go back to where you were before. You kind of carry that forward with you and it kind of influences everything that you do. It influences your, the next hiring round. It influences yeah. how you think about communicating with with people in terms of, you know, this is this is the right decision. You know, we need to reduce the staff. You explain to remaining staff, you know, why that is the case. You explain to the people, obviously you're letting go what the situation is and you do it with respect uh, and authenticity. So they know what the drivers are, you know. So, so again, these are things that I think it's hard to kind of make up. I think you have to kind of go through that and you have to kind of lead through those type of situations. I mean, the other thing I suppose was being in New York for September 11th. Um, you know, I was downtown, you know, on just off Wall Street with my team um, when the planes hit and, uh, you know, had to kind of live through that experience of, of making sure my team was okay because a lot of my team communicated in or, you know, trans, uh, uh, commuted in via the World Trade Center, uh, the station underneath the World Trade Center. So we had, our team was missing. Um, lots of chunks of our team were missing. So, you know, planes hit at whatever, 8.30, 8.20, I didn't leave the office until two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, and, and why? Because, you know, you had responsibility for people and, you know, you cared about them. I've been there kind of reasonable amount of time, but um, it's interesting. You see how people operate in those kind of crisis situations. People, you know, react very differently. It doesn't mean it's good or bad, but I think those things all match up in terms of things that you can point to in terms of how you act in those kind of situations that contributes towards that kind of, you know, uh, that leadership strength, I suppose, that in my mind comes from, it's kind of like, was it, was it um, uh, somebody was saying recently, I think it was Arnold Schwarzenegger talking, he had Conan's sword on, on, uh, on the internet last week and talking about, you know, the scars, you know, scars make the steel stronger. I think uh, to a certain extent, leadership's all about that, that you can, you can teach it all you like, but if you haven't actually gone into battle, so to speak, in terms of experience, some of the, 
you know, the, the trauma, but also the acceleration of actually getting through something, then it doesn't really count. John, you, you, you know, evoke here a really strong sense of, of purpose and, and caring and the humanitarian side. T um, tell me a bit more about that, because, again, I know there's a story of, of your, you know, kind of, you know, ahead of the game. We talk about uh, yeah, sustainability, but also in terms of, of gender equality, etc. Tell me a bit about, um, you, you know, that part. And I guess an environment, at, for instance, at Goldman Sachs, which is, you know, it's pretty much red, you know, it's, it's it's pretty much a, a a a fast and furious. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I suppose I things always kind of look very different from the outside than they are on the inside, and I think I try to always kind of center myself on I'm a human being, and so is everybody else. And I think that growing up as probably a teenager, I wasn't as confident. But as you go through different interactions with people and some very strong personalities, right? As I mentioned in in, in moving to New York culture and everything else. I think you kind of build up a bit of a of an index of how how bad people can be in that kind of professional environment, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like there's a scale of of, of you know of you know of behavior. Um, but you know, at some point, I think you find that uh, okay, you have a you know a certain capability and you have a certain core. And I think from 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 my perspective, um, I always felt that we can you know, we can be what we want to be as long as we kind of put our minds down to it. And there's a lot of flack going on. There's a lot of uh, noise. Uh, but if you just kind of get on with it and, and, and a little bit of a step, you know, every day, you kind of get to a point where I think you have uh, confidence and capability to kind of make a change. So I think just from a kind of a vegetarian um, and veganism and sustainability perspective, you know, there I felt that was my core. And I probably didn't execute on that until much later, maybe, you know, maybe five, six years ago. Uh, for other things that I felt strongly about, like gender equality and disability in the workplace, you know, I kind of made it my a point of what I did to do more than just work, so to speak, productive work with respect to the business at work, but uh, try and invest in teams, um, not just my own teams, but, you know, the broader aspect of teams. So there, there were kind of two or three things that were um, very useful um, with respect to gender equality and, and disability. One, I was... Um, and they kind of wrapped, I wrapped them into two, but eventually I became co-head of the um, Diversity Steering Committee for our technology group in, in, in London. And um, I suppose one of the things, I was helping out in disability because I felt that there are lots of disabilities out there that we don't see. Um, you know, I think I come from, obviously I'm Irish, um, you know, I suppose I, and, and especially coming to London, I always felt like I was a minority. Um, and I always kind of put my head uh, into somebody else's head in terms of, well, every, everybody's a minority in some kind of way. It might be gender, uh, it might be uh, a disability, you know, everybody's got this kind of minority feeling about them in some shape or form, and some people that affects them more, you know, more than others. But what I felt was I could empathize with somebody being a minority. And I felt I had kind of worked my way through it myself in terms of the experiences I've, I've, I've had. And I suppose I was a bit impatient in terms of, well, hang on, we can, I can kind of help join the dots here for people. So let's just, let's just kind of figure this stuff out. So my boss in London at the time was, was very interested in, in disability and done a lot of great things around disability in terms of, you know, bringing new technologies into the, into the firm and, and, you know, things like that. And then, um, you know, we had an opportunity to work with a, a charity around Asperger syndrome and start to bring in, you know, a couple of interns into, you know, into, into my group, actually, we brought in two in a row into our group uh, to, you know, give opportunity, provide opportunity and help people get kind of get the leg up. Because again, you don't know if it's gonna work unless you try it. 
And you can say, no, it's not going to work and never try it and never know. Or you can bring it in and you can say, well, okay, that kind of went okay. Here's the, here are the things that didn't work and here are the things that did, but at least we've learned something and we can kind of move on. Um, I think on, on the kind of gender side, well, on the gender and the kind of, let's say the LGBTQ, uh, et cetera, side of things, um, you know, I had a good friend in Tokyo. Um, I had a good friend in Tokyo who subsequently moved to New York. Um, I knew him in Tokyo a lot and on, on many trips to New York, we, you know, we socialized quite a lot. And uh, I remember at one point, uh, five or six years after I got to know him, he, he told me in a bar in New York, well, you know, I'm, I'm gay, he says. And I'm like, what, you think I don't know that, right? It's, it's almost like, I knew him for years. I got out with him several times. You know, if people don't want to talk about something, I'm not going to just go there just for my own curiosity. So he told me that, and, and he was hugely relieved when he told me. And I was like, so what? Okay, who's getting the next beer? And I, <laughs> I, came, I came back to London and then I said, oh my goodness, there are probably lots of people in this office who maybe feel that way can't be themselves. And um, so I, got, I, I kind of put my hand up and said, I'd like to be able to help out in whatever way I can to bring the LGBT network as it was into the, what I call the mainstream. Um, it was a fantastic network in terms of supporting all of its members, but nobody else knew what they were about. So my view on it was, well, let's shine a light on this and, and uh, make it mainstream. So went through uh, education basically, uh, a, you know, set of education. So I had to educate myself as well, largely, but I felt that I was now managing director, I had the platform and I could, uh, you know, lend support. So I worked with them in, at a detailed level to come up with resources and education that would kind of get out to groups. And then I felt, well, you know, we can kind of run all these educational sessions and people can participate and they'll all be impressed and they'll go back to their desks. But is that really gonna, is that really gonna change things? So again, I thought about, well, no, we're going to do this education in smaller groups. So every group is going to go in as their group with their manager and their co-manager or the you know, senior people. And they're going to have that conversation. They're going to experience that education all together at the same time. And then they're going to go back into their group. And it's not like I was off, I signed up for some random course. You know, we wanted to kind of drive that into the organization. So that whole you know, process yeah, was, was quite effective. And um, you know, I was fortunate. I, I mentioned earlier, I think, uh, you know, Stonewall recognized our, our network within Goldman as, as network of the year, uh, partly, you know, citing that approach. And I mean, that that's my view of how the world should work. If you have more knowledge, if you have more connections or, you know, you can influence, you should use that for the philosophical, you know, good, so to speak, which kind of leads me through to, again, what I'm doing now. That's part of the reason why, you know, having looked, having worked in finance, you know, for so long, having done those types of things, you know, within Goldman, which, which were professional, then I was, I was kind of thinking, well, uh, where's the passion? You know, where's my passion? Am I really doing anything about it? Can I, can I take the risk? And, um, and then I felt maybe I could do more to join the dots, which is where we set up Planet Arbors. So talk about that then, you know, if you think, take a little bit of a step back, which is why did you do this? Tell us a little bit more about what it is now, and then maybe a little bit about, where do you see this thing going? Like if we, if we have a conversation again, a year from now, five years from now, what do you think it will be? So um, how we got into it was uh, when I, when I suppose, I, again, within Goldman, because I wasn't just the kind of the engineer, the techie guy, I worked very closely with the business and the business had a lot of expansion it had expansion into new markets. It had investments into companies. And um, 
I always had the pleasure of being pulled along to those due diligence, you know, sessions and, and visits. And uh, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed working with our business team in terms of how they were investing into, into others. And uh, if I thought about, that was kind of the culmination of where I felt professionally, I was now doing a job that was using all of the skills I learned internationally across lots of different functions and lots of different technologies. And now I could go in and look at a company and, and, and you know, make, make a, an assessment you know, from a technology perspective, from a business functionality perspective, in terms of some, something that we wanted to do. So um, I suppose when I left Goldman, it was a very, very tough decision. Um, took me about two years to make the decision, but I made it. And it's probably one of the most difficult decisions I've ever made was, was, to, was to leave. But I decided if I don't do it now, I'll, I'll never do it. I have to do it. Um, so I kind of, I kind of took that, um, those, those, that kind of learning. And I would say, again, if you talk about another lesson learned, I probably should have maybe better engineered my exit um, to get a little bit more direct investment experience with the investment groups as against advising from a technology, you know, perspective only, but, you know, uh, you can't, you can't undo history, but as, as was when I got out, you needed a bit of, um, I needed a headspace to find out what I wanted to do and kept my connections within Goldman and got some very good advice and, and, and direction and, and ended up um, actually advising um, private equity uh, on their investments into FinTech. Um, and also myself and um, the other major partner at Planet Arborist, we also did some due diligence and, and private investment into companies generally with a social purpose. So what we found was that we've now developed even more skills in terms of how to analyze companies, you know, how to look at their projections, you know, using your accountancy skills and your projection skills and people skills and everything else. And um, then I felt, okay, well, I can do this for these types of companies, but, you know, we kind of grew up myself and, and, and Gilbert, who's the other major partner in Planet Arborist, we kind of grew up doing things and building things. And all of a sudden we're kind of like, okay, we're investing, we're looking, we're analyzing, but I kind of felt we could do more. And I suppose where I had the epiphany or the revelation was, uh, hang on, how can I put this in the context of sustainability? With an emerging um, you know, market from, from the perspective of you know, veganism and plant-based products, certainly food and other products following along, along I felt we could build we could build a platform we could build a deal platform for uh, sustainability where we would only work with sustainability companies we would only work with those companies who were achieving sustainability through plant-based products um, and we would only work with investors that were interested in having an impact in the sustainability world so I kind of saw us as being able to kind of build a platform a matchmaker so to speak for want of a better word where we kind of found the kind of really interesting companies um, and match them up with the investors who want to kind of make that difference. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a charity, right? Investors need to see the financial return um, as well as all of the other good, you know, sustainability efforts. And, and uh, we put all those together into a very nice package. But I felt that um, we had a role to play there. We could build, we could build something. We had our connections into, into obviously back into financial industry, but also all of the connections we built up in terms of private equity exposure and corporate finance. Uh, you know, since I left. And um, essentially that, that's kind of what we built in, in, in Planet Arborist. We've kind of gone a little bit further in terms of uh, referring services as well. So I think in my mind, I always wanted to kind of do a little bit more, I suppose, to kind of help out. If you're going to help out, it, it's, it's great that you can match make, but how do you, how do you ensure the marriage kind of <laughs> succeeds? Um, you know, money is one thing, uh, executive capital, financial capital, but what about business services? What about business growth services? So you know, we've worked with a few business growth services as well to say, hey, we like these companies because um, they've supported 
uh, plant-based or uh, vegan or vegetarian type companies in the past from a branding distribution, you know, legal, uh, you know, perspective and, and other things that are just generally good for, you know, company development. So we've created this portal that allows us to, you know, find entrepreneurs in, in the plant-based world, um, match them up with investors and also introduce services as well. Um, and there's one other thing that we do, which again is more, it's kind of keeping our focus on the B2B is, if we're looking for companies to invest in or to present for investment, you know, we're analyzing them, they have to meet certain criteria. And then we kind of decided, well, hang on, if we're gonna use that criteria privately, why don't we try and use it or show it publicly? So, you know, part of what we're doing is creating a, a kind of a rating. Um, you know, we're working on a methodology, uh, we'll transferring the methodology that we use, I suppose, into a, let's say a rating system that um, we'll publish and we'll talk about and we'll start to uh, rate our companies more publicly in terms of this is how we feel about them on various different, you know, sustainability scales. So if you think about the public markets and the fact that you've got the MSCI index, uh, which evolved into the, well, uh, uh, there's another index called the MSCI um, ESG index, the Environment and Social Government Index, that's all public companies. Mm -hmm. There's very little done for private companies. And I think what we wanted to do is to start the ball rolling and start to at least talk about how we felt some companies were doing very well. Um, we're not out there to point the fingers so much at companies that aren't doing so well, but we are absolutely out there to point out the companies that are doing well. Mm -hmm. So we, we felt that from a funding perspective, from a business development service perspective, from a rating, all of which we kind of have to do when we're interested in anyway, why not put those together into, into a package on the platform? So, but, you know, we're, we're, we're still building. Um, you know, we, we're working on the ratings over the course of you know, this year. So when you talk about where will we be this time next year, I think, what we focused on doing is using our technology skills, I suppose, in a world that can be a little bit closed and a little bit, um, you know, private to kind of opening that up onto a platform where we can essentially, you know, mass market what we like and what we do to producers and to, to entrepreneurs, producers, as well as to investors and create a machine um, to bring the best, to, you know, to the surface. And we're not, we're not necessarily talking about startups, on exception. We're really talking about companies who have built something and they're looking for the scale of capital to, to kind of go ballistic, so to speak, from a positive sustainability perspective, right? So they have a good product, they're ready to, they're ready to rock, and they will make a difference in terms of the sustainability profile. John, talk, tell me, you mentioned vegan, you me, uh, mentioned plant and vegetarian. Just, just give the listeners here a perspective of, of the direction this is taken and, and you know, and how you encapsulate all of that, because, you know, there's views and behaviors around the world on, on, on what people eat, what, you know, whether it's a vegan based or vegetarian, etc. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we're called Plant Arborist for a reason, because we're, we're focused on sustainability and achieving that through, you know, plant based products. Um, we don't necessarily are, talk, you know, talk about vegan, um, even though I am vegan. Um, we talk about plant based because it's more inclusive, and we are trying to be more inclusive. And when people say vegan, 99% of people will think food. Um, and we're interested in much more than food uh, because the, the kind of plant-based or the sustainability benefits go really across lots of different consumption sectors. So whilst there's a decent amount of food companies, that's probably the more, more, most advanced in terms of types of companies, at least number of companies, um, you know, we're looking at uh, companies in, in apparel and clothes in accessories um, which are all plant-based. We're looking at energy and environmental companies, some, some very interesting 
you know, progression there in terms of using, you know, plant-based energy resources, including waste material to, to produce, you know, carbon neutral alternatives. Um, obviously we're interested in, in, in carbon reduction as well, but I think we're pragmatists as well in that um, for some industries, there's a huge amount of, you know, asset value out there, which if you turn off oil, for example, a lot of those asset values need to be, or they become destroyed or they need to be torn down and something else needs to be built. And it, it will happen in time, but it's not gonna happen overnight. So you need, to, you need to have kind of transition technologies to kind of help you get there uh, where it's needed. And you absolutely need to have the, the kind of, the, 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 kind of the, the technologies that will make a big difference. So for example, if you're looking at uh, energy environmental and you're looking at cars, Cars are assets that depreciate pretty quickly. You know, whoever wants to buy a new car and drive it off and find out it's worth a third less in you know in a month, um, they really depreciate fast. But they're replaced, you know, you know, quite quickly. So moving to an electric vehicle as an alternative source of energy for that car makes a lot of sense. If you're talking about you know um, heating very large buildings, if you're talking about um, uh, fueling ships around the world, those are those are huge assets, right? That are very much more difficult to our planes, for that that example. Uh, you know, those those are assets that you know are very expensive, last a long time, and I think there are other. Uh, there's a third way, I think, to get them, you know, more sustainable until the right technology arrives. Certainly for flying planes around, um, and probably uh, more immediately for for heavier industry type solutions. You know, so so. There's the other area then, which is personal uh, and health, you know, whilst we focus primarily on planet and sustainability, you know, that the whole health profile, I think goes in there as well. And that um, it kind of links in a little bit to, I suppose, the vegan diet and everything else that I think we want to promote companies that are focused on, on health and healthy outcomes and nutritious outcomes. Um, we also want to ensure that personal care, uh, you know, there, there's, if they, if some types of products and some type of industry industries really don't tell you very much about what's in their products. And if you were to find that out, you probably wouldn't buy them anymore. Um, so, so I think they're really interesting companies out there that are working on products that are, that will uh, list their ingredients. Um, they will be sustainable and they will compete very well against other products that, uh, you know, from, from a quality perspective that, that are, are maybe, well, hugely worse off from a sustainability perspective and possibly leverage, you know, too much greenwashing to make people feel that they're the right thing, but they're not actually the right thing. So, you know, I, I think we go across the board um, in terms of the types of companies that we want to help and the type of investment opportunities. And I think um, even if you look at food, people think about food, oh, it's, it's, it's my ready meal or it's my, uh, my chocolate or, or my alternative protein, which is, you know, a fantastically interesting, uh, you know, scientific field. And we're absolutely interested, you know, in that, but there are, other things that are deeper into the infrastructure of what we do, the ag, the ag tech, you know, the agricultural technology, you know, what's used to produce, you know, uh, more effective um, uh, crops, you know, in fields. Um, is that the answer or do you want that plus, you know, biodiversity mixed in? Where can you get the right mix? There's lots of interesting, you know, technology emerging where those are absolutely companies that we're focused on, in, on as well, because it's a little bit like the, the gold rush in California you know, it wasn't the the guys and girls went out with the, uh, you know, the, the search for the gold that got rich. It's the people who sold them the hammers and the axes and the shovels and everything else, right? Um, I think there's, there's a, now this isn't the same thing, but I think there's a huge value uh, in investing in infrastructure from an investor perspective, from a, from a market perspective, because without that infrastructure investment and without that big change, you're, you're not going to have enough products available to enough people in the mainstream 
uh, to be affordable enough to make a difference to drive down the you know the carbon footprint of a lot of what we do. So so I think that this is where we kind of join the dots and say there's there's merit in uh, every company that we look at where they're driving down the the, the CO2 equivalent you know footprint. Um, and we're, we're happy to do that even more so at the infrastructure level where I suppose you can have a bit more of a multiplier effect. It makes everybody's job easier. Chefs around the countries and lots of different hotels and restaurants when they can open again, obviously, they want to be able to kind of source, you know, ingredients, not just raw ingredients, but part prepared ingredients, the alternative proteins, other types of options that are affordable, you know, much more quickly. And, and if those companies, uh, you know, are available, as I said, then uh, it'll, make the, it'll make an impact much, much, much more quickly. Hey, so just building on that then, John, it strikes me that there's, there's multiple layers to this opportunity slash problem of sustainability. There's individual choices that consumers that make that are largely influenced by both values and availability. There's almost like societal prioritization choices that are made. And then there's sort of a role that the government perhaps may need to play to ensure that there is choice, but there's also an economic story behind it that can attract consumers to buy whatever service or product it is and for companies to be willing to invest. Where do you think, you know, and this eventually everything, as you mentioned, does need to connect. And is there something that you see happening in, you know, the next five years or so that will help you know, accelerate that or something that you feel like is, is still needed? I think we're, you know, uh, I suppose I'm a, I'm a big believer in the, in consumer power and uh, the, the summation of lots of small decisions can have a huge impact. Um, of course, that needs to be complemented by choice and availability of choice. So um, that's why I will say to anybody, you know, if they, if they're thinking about going plant-based or even, you know, flexitarian, you know, a few days a week, go to where you shop, ask the questions, because if you don't ask, they're not going to stop it for you. The more people that ask, you know, the more it'll drive the, the, the demand and, and the supply, you know, will follow. Um, so, th- so I think obviously that, 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 that's a given. I think in terms of infrastructure of the market and, and regulation and government incentives, I think we're on the, on, on the, on the edge or on the verge of huge structural change in terms of how the EU uh, and the US um, can drive these changes through. Obviously, the the, the Green Deal um, from a kind of a, a U.S. perspective and, a, and the green economy from a EU perspective, I think, are going to make a huge difference. And I think that's what's been missing. Um, you know, politicians rarely lead; people lead, and politicians follow. So, you know, what's happened, I think, over time is that they've seen the trends grow in terms of. Um, it's a bit like COVID, right? And and you know, some governments. Um, are not very good at making decisions. Um, we won't name any, but they tend to wait until it's a little bit too late. And if they made decisions sooner, then it would have been better, right? But they they would they do make decisions, but you know it, it, it tend to be tardy. I think with the with the with the with the uh, with sustainability, I think it's similar. I think that we all have a selfish gene, right? We look after ourselves. We have to breathe, or else we can't do anything. We look after ourselves, and then we kind of look out look look after things around us. Um, and then maybe we look after kind of other people or sentient beings or whatever, right? So, so I think that's just a natural priority that people have. So I think from a health perspective, people are moving to more sustainable products because they're, they're plant-based and they're healthy, but it's probably a bit of a mixture of both. They're not necessarily moving there due to because of sustainability reasons, but it's a fantastic byproduct. Um, 
uh, you know, from a climate perspective, which is probably a second uh, priority because you can't touch and feel it as easily. You, you, you can do more so these days, but traditionally it's not been that observable. Um, I think it's a little bit more uh, esoteric. And I think that uh, if that's starting to happen, that's where, you know, government sees that the consumers are prepared to be more flexitarian and tolerant uh, in terms of, you know, and open-minded in terms of what they buy and what they purchase. And meanwhile, we have this massive carbon problem, which is not getting any better. In fact, it's, you know, it's getting worse. So I think that those two changes, uh, you know, the, the EU, I think, is the biggest market in the world. It's certainly the biggest single market in the world. If they're making these changes, everybody will follow, including the UK. The UK will do its own thing, but it'll have to follow one of the largest markets in the world, just as any other uh, exporter of goods or services into the EU will, and the same for the US. So, you know, I, I'm hugely encouraged by what's going to happen hopefully in the next year from a US perspective, especially in terms of the investment in the green economy. Um, but I think there's so many more benefits other than say sustainability. I think that invest, and this is kind of borne out, I think over the last, you know, six months, year, certainly, you know, especially with tax cuts driving up um, the deficit, et cetera, the money is there, right? It's available. Interest rates are low. Um, you know, you, the U.S. especially needs to invest in the in the green economy. It needs to deliver progress and growth and opportunity through to all those folks who feel they've been left behind in whatever shape, shape or form. Um, and I think that's what will make the difference. Investment. You can you you know you know, borrow the money, invest in the economy, grow the economy. But by God, make sure you're achieving your sustainability goals and you're providing um, the opportunity for people to feel that they're left behind and they haven't had it to date. So, so, so I do think that that's hugely important and that's you know, a kind of philosophic, I suppose, view on, on where government can absolutely play a role. You, know, you need some kind of governance of society, whether it's political or, or regulation, et cetera, to make sure that you know, you're, you're kind of tweaking around the edges in terms of what is you know, fundamentally a, a kind of a market-based economy, certainly in, in the US and the EU and the UK. Fascinating. Well, thank you, uh, John. Absolutely amazing journey. And, um, you know, I was just reflecting on, on a part of the stories that, that you went through. Well, first up, doing a 360 around the world <laughs> and, um, and helping businesses around the world. But at the same time, for me, the, you know, the backup of, of who you are and what you believe in, uh, you know, comes through loud and clear and has made you successful and uh i love the fact that you're still holding this placard right now of sustainability and and uh and they uh, looking after the world you know and and that is something that um is fascinating and i, w I wish you ev every success with that well thank you very much i think we've got a lot of work to do but i think the world is things are looking brighter than they did <laughs> certainly a few years ago and uh I think, again, I think the powers with the consumer, I think we can all do a little bit. It goes back to just take, take a step, just get around the next turn on the, on the climb up the mountain, we'll get there. Uh, but if we're not cycling, we ain't going anywhere. <laughs> I like that analogy, John. And it's clear that you've always been one that's, uh, that, that's been moving in your life. And, and as Simon mentioned, I mean, some of the things that really stood out for me is the, you know, the, the values that go back through, you know, everything you've done, whether it was sustainability or diversity and inclusion and things like that. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, the world needs more of that. And I think hearing from people who've, who've 
demonstrated those values in a wide array of cultures as you have in a wide array of professional environments and now in your own company, I think is um, inspiring to those who would say, um, you know, I'd like that because you're actually doing it. So thanks so much for joining us. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorn. Please join us at whatiwishinewshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com.